0: Thank you for joining us for this message from Cornerstone Community Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. And now, let's join our guest speaker. If I were to ask how many of you are going through a crisis, it could be a mild crisis, moderate crisis, or heavy-duty crisis, everybody in here would raise your hand, because everybody in here, we live in the flesh, we live in a fallen world, so everyone's always going through something. And today I want to encourage us as we go through what we go through, okay? I want to encourage you that there's an invisible hand that is working, guiding, leading, working in our lives, okay? You know, as I I study the book of Esther, which is really what we're going to go through today, I was pretty amazed that... There's no miracles recorded in the book of Esther. There's no prayers recorded in the book of Esther. God's name isn't even mentioned in the book of Esther. But yet, if you read between the lines, you'll see God, you'll see prayer, you'll see mighty acts of deliverance. And just this morning as I woke up, the thought came to me, what's the greatest deliverance of the Old Testament? And the answer would be the Exodus, right? I mean, God does these mighty signs and wonders. Um, He he, he brings the ten plagues on Pharaoh. And finally brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. The Red Sea parts, right? Pharaoh goes in, the Red Sea crashes on. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. The book of Esther has what I would submit to you is a deliverance of the same magnitude As God bringing Israel out of Egypt. But God does not do it with a miracle. God does it working through little circumstances and events in people's lives. But the deliverance, it's amazing how God can do that. There's no miracle that God, I mean, in one sense, God's working in our everyday lives. You could call that a miracle. But I'm not calling that a miracle. I'm just calling that God's providence. Okay, so I'm going to make a distinction between providence and miracles. In general, a miracle is something supernatural, right? God's providence. Let me read a definition from Wayne Grudem. Uh, Wayne Grudem wrote a, a theological book, uh, and he says this. He says God's providence is His continual involvement and direction of all created things in order to fulfill His purposes and bring glory to Himself, basically. So, my encouragement to us today is no matter what you're facing, okay, it's good to ask for a miracle. There's no problem with that. But if God doesn't bring a miracle to your life, that doesn't mean He's not working actively involved in your life. Deism says God kind of created the universe, wound it up, and just let everything go, right? Okay, we don't, we don't do deism here. God is intimately involved in our personal lives, infinitely more detailed than we can even really imagine or think. So, that's the content of the message today. Hopefully, this is going to be an encouragement to you as you are going to see, hopefully, how God is moving In your life. And we're going to do that through the book of Esther. All right, so let me just give you a little background on Esther. Esther happened approximately 483 BC, 483 to about 473 BC. Takes place over a span of about 10 years. Now, about 50 years before Esther takes place, okay, God was setting the Jews free who had been taken captive to Babylon. So Zerubbabel in Babylon is now going to take a group back to Jerusalem. This is 50 years before Esther. So the Jews are starting to trickle back to Jerusalem. Okay, Then the book of Esther comes. Then about 15 years after that, Ezra is going to take more people back to Jerusalem. And then about 15 years after that, Nehemiah is going to take people back to Jerusalem. So Esther is kind of sandwiched right in between Uh, the Jews starting to go back to Jerusalem, okay? Now, during the time of Esther, King Ahasuerus is ruling. So the Jews, they were in Babylon. Even though they're going back to Jerusalem, they're still under foreign oppression. They're they're under the uh, kingdom of uh, the Persians. And so that gives us a little background. And as I already mentioned, it's just interesting. There's no mention of God or or prayer and it's almost like the author was morally neutral as he wrote the book of Esther. And what I get out of that is simply this, it really heightens the power of God's movement through the small little things in everyday life. Okay, there's no big red seas parting like I said. So what's really critical in the book of Esther is teeny little everyday circumstances that don't seem to mean anything, but they mean a tremendous amount. And hopefully that will translate into our lives as I go through this. So you're going to get a jet tour through the book of Esther this morning. So let's start. The story opens with, uh, there's 180 days where King Ahasuerus is showing all his splendor, the splendor of his kingdom, right? Okay, and following this 180 days, he has a seven-day Okay, so there's a lot of eating and drinking, of course, at this seven-day feast. And let's see what happens at the end of the feast. I'm in chapter 1 now, verse 10 in Esther. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, translation, he was drunk. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Is that fair to say? (laughs) Probably. Probably. He commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Bagtha, Zither, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. Incredibly important concept to this whole story, the king gets drunk. you got to follow this. As we go through the story, just remember the king got drunk. Okay, second incredibly important point to the story is Vashti is the queen. And let's find out what she does in verse 12. The queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. So the king became very angry and burned in rage. Okay, so two very important points. Vashti refuses to come. The king is drunk. This is how God's people are going to get delivered. Through a drunk king and a woman who refuses to obey the king. I mean, it's it's amazing what's going to happen. here. All right, so the king's drunk ego is wounded and bruised because she won't do what he says. So he goes to his advisors to cry on their shoulder. And he says, hey guys, we need to do something about this. This isn't right. I mean... What does the law of the Medes, what does the law of the Persians say that we should do? So, and one of his advisors, says, Hey, look, this isn't good. All the women in the whole kingdom, they're not going to obey their husbands, so we need to do something about this. Why don't we depose Vashti as queen? She can't come into your presence anymore. King's like, Yeah, sounds good. So, that's what they do. Is Vashti can no longer come into the king's presence. Now, I'm in chapter 2. I don't think it's on the PowerPoint. Verse 1, it says, After these things, okay, what things? The king, Ahasuerus, five years has just passed since this banquet. Ahasuerus has gone to fight wars, the Grecian wars, okay? And for a five-year period, he fights. He doesn't do very well. He kind of comes back. Uh, he really didn't. He wasn't able to defeat the Greeks. So after the Grecian Wars, um, he's going to come back, and now they're going to find a new queen for the king, right? So uh, there's the king, the eunuch overall. This is Haggai, and uh, so all his servants. They issue this command to go throughout the entire Persian kingdom, right? They're going to bring all these young, virgin, pretty girls into one big harem in the palace at Susa. And so that's exactly what they do. They go out, they start bringing all these women because they want to find a replacement queen for the king. So there's this guy named Mordecai, right? Mordecai is the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Okay, that's really important. The son of Kish, a Benjamite. Anyone else remember who was the son of Kish? Saul. Remember David and Saul and Samuel back in those days? Okay, Saul was a son of Kish, a Benjamite. And Saul had to fight the Amalekites, whose king was Agag. Okay? So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. So there's this guy named Mordecai. He's a Jew. He's a son of Kish, a Benjamite. And Mordecai is raising Esther, who is his cousin. I believe it's his uncle's daughter and her parents died. So Mordecai was taking care of her. So she's a Jew. And she's a young, pretty virgin. So she gets rounded up into the harem in the palace. Okay, so let's find out what happens here in the palace, in the harem. Um, let's look in verse 19. I'm sorry, not verse 19. Um, Verse 9, chapter 2. It says, Now the young lady pleased him, that's Haggai, and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. I'm not sure what the best place in the harem is. <laughs> okay, but she, she made it, whatever it was. Um, but the whole the whole key... Phrase there is she finds favor, okay? So here's what they're going to do, and you can read the text. I'm not making this part up here. The women are going to be brought in at night to the king. They're going to spend the night with the king and come out and come back to the harem the next morning, okay? So what are they really doing when they go in with the king? Well, presumably... They're sleeping with the king, okay? So whichever young virgin is going to please the king, that one's going to be the new queen. And so I don't know how many were in this harem. Who knows? Um, So let's read again here what's going to happen. Verse 15. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women advised. Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. There's the favor word again. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tibet in the seventh year of his reign. Verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Okay, so why did the king get drunk? Well, That was so Vashti would refuse to come out. Why did Vashti have to refuse to come out? That's so a new queen could be picked. Are you with me so far? Okay, this new queen, Esther has found favor. Okay, so what about Mordecai? Um, Let's read a little bit about Mordecai, see what he has to say, what it says about him in verse 21 of chapter 2. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, okay, if you're sitting at the king's gate, um, you had a good job. That's where justice was done. That's where commerce took place at the king's gate. So Mordecai seems to have this position of prominence. Well, there's Bigfen and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on Ahasuerus. Okay, but the plot became known to Mordecai. Could I say, it just so happened that Mordecai overheard the plot. And he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. So the plot's investigated and found to be so that they were both hanged on a gallows, and it just so happened to be written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. Okay, that's really important. It's important that Esther finds favor. It's important that Mordecai just so happens to overhear this conversation. It's important that it just so happened to be recorded in the king's record book. Got it? Okay. Alright, so that's Mordecai. So that's kind of act one to the story. Act two, enter the villain. There's always a villain, right? You, nobody in here would go to any movie if there wasn't a villain. You really would. All right, so enter Haman. He's the evil villain. Okay, what's the scripture say about Haman? Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Okay, it's kind of interesting. Mordecai just saved the king. Nothing. Haman comes out of nowhere, promoted. Okay. Something interesting. But you got to pay attention, who is Haman? He's the son of the Agagite. Okay, so who were the Agagites? Well, back to Saul, back to Samuel's time, right? King Agag was king over the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites weren't very good because when God did bring Israel out of Egypt and they were tired and weary and walking through the desert, the Amalekites came and harassed them and started to make war with them. Well, God didn't like that very much. Okay, So let's see, what did God say about the Amalekites? Exodus 17. Let's just go back here. I'm going to actually start in uh, verse 13. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God wasn't very happy with the Amalekites because they waged war against Israel. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner, and said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, the Amalekites are history. I mean, God has spoken something against them. It's going to come to pass. All right, so Agag is king over the Amalekites. It seems like Haman is some kind of descendant from Agag, right? So during Saul's time, Saul was told by Samuel, you need to go destroy Agag and the Amalekites. Destroy them. Do not leave one. Did Saul obey? No. No. Saul destroyed most of the Amalekites, but left a number of them alive. Saul, the son of Kish, was fighting Agag and the Agagites, right? So do you see a setup for a family feud here? Okay, we have a family feud. 500 years later, Haman, the Agagite, and Mordecai, the son of Kish, are now coming together in proximity. Isn't that kind of interesting? Alright, so what does this all mean? Well, Haman walks out with his new promotion and the king had said, hey, you guys need to bow down to Haman and pay him honor because I just promoted him. Well, Mordecai doesn't want to show honor to Haman. And you could think, well, maybe he was being asked to worship Haman as a god. Maybe, but probably not. It was probably the feud thing going on that... Haman and Mordecai hated each other because of their you know, this feud that's been going on all these years. Anyway, you can, you can take that for what it is. But Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him, And they said, why not? He said, well, because I'm a Jew. Jews don't bow down to you. The, the author doesn't give the reason, but kind of reading between the lines. So let's see what Haman's reaction is to this. In verse... Um, Five and 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, we don't Quite understand. How many Jews do you think were in the kingdom of Ahasuerus? Well, all of them. I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of them, at least, right? And we're about to have a genocide. I mean, genocide. That's what's going on here. So, Haman comes up with this idea. He says, Well, I'll just cast lots to figure out which month we should destroy the Jews. Now, the lot, this is interesting they found these clay lots and they're like our dice. They're actually cubes and they have cuneiform written on them and some of them actually have little dots like ours. So in the first month, which was Nisan, uh, Haman's shaking the the dice and he tosses them and it comes out in the twelfth month of Adar is when, I guess according to the gods or the magic or whatever, that's when the Jews need to be destroyed. So there's this 11, 11 month gap between when um, Haman casts the lots and the Jews are to be destroyed through genocide. Okay, so all he has to do now is go to the king. So he goes to the king. He says, Hey, there's a people that they're, they don't obey your commands. We need to destroy them. The king says, Okay, no problem. Writes a decree, sends it out. To, I mean, sends it out to the entire kingdom, right? Well, Mordecai hears about it. He's appalled. So he puts on sackcloth. And, I mean, this guy's mourning big time. Esther hears about it. And uh, Esther and Mordecai, I mean, all the Jews hear about it. They're just flabbergasted. Where did this thing come from? Out of the blue. So Esther and uh, Mordecai have this conversation between a messenger. Okay. And the conversation, let's see where it is found here. Um, in verse Chapter 4, verses 8. Okay, he says, He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her why, to order her to go in to the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. So Mordecai's taking some action, right? Esther, you need to do something about it, I mean. Uh, So that goes back to Esther. Esther says, Mordecai, you don't understand. I haven't seen the king for 30 days, and no one comes to see the king unless he extends the scepter. And if he doesn't extend the scepter, he executes people. So I'm not sure I want to do this. And what did Mordecai say? Verse 13 Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you and all the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. So Esther and Mordecai now are realizing God might be requiring something specifically of Esther. It's going to take some courage to go and see the king. So Esther throws a fast. That's a good thing to do in a crisis, right? Right? She throws a fast. Doesn't mention prayer, but she probably prayed. Three-day fast. At the end of the third day, she goes to see the king. Walks up to the king, and she gets this, the scepter. And the king says, Esther, what is your request? Up to half the kingdom. And she said, well, I want to prepare a banquet for you and Haman. The king's like, no problem. All right, so they... Haman's invited to this banquet, so Haman comes to the banquet. The king's there. Haman's all happy, right? He's at the banquet with the king and the queen. Um, and the king says, Esther, what is your request up to half the kingdom? Esther says, well, let's do another banquet tomorrow. And I'll tell you then. Okay. Was she afraid? Was she hesitant? Did she have a strategy? Or was it God's providential working? Let's find out. So that night, Haman goes, Haman leaves. He's all happy, right? He's got the favor. And as he goes out, he sees Mordecai, and Mordecai refuses about to to him, and it really vexes him. He's really irritated. And he gets home, and he tells his wife the good news, and he says, but I can't stand Mordecai. What should I do? She says, well, it's simple. Just build a gallows and hang him on it tomorrow. I mean, it's such a simple book, Esther, right? Just issue these commands with So he's like, yeah, no problem. So he has this gallows built that night. Well, that night, the king can't sleep. The king just so happened to not be able to sleep. And so the king calls his servant and says, hey, bring the book of records. And he just so happened to read in the book of records where Mordecai saved his life. Okay, so why was the banquet delayed? Oh, maybe something's going on here. And he says, well, hey, what's been done for Mordecai? The guy saved my life. Has anyone honored him? King, you should know. <clears throat> no, nothing. nobody's honored him. So he says, well, who's in the court? Haman's in the court. Tells Haman to come in. What should we do to honor the one whom the king is pleased with? And Haman thinks it's him. So he gives all these grandiose parade him around on the king's steed and put the royal robes on him and <laughs> parade him through the entire empire. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit. So he says, good. Go take Mordecai and do what you've said. (laughs) It's awesome, man. I mean, the guy has got to be super crestfallen, okay? So, uh, anyway, the next day at the banquet, we have the repeat. Esther, my dear, what would you like? What's your request? Up to half the kingdom. So, king, I wouldn't mention anything except our people are about to be completely destroyed. It's terrible, and it's all because of Haman. So this guy is like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> the king gets up. He's 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 angry. He's in a rage. The king shares some guilt in this because he signed the decree in the first place, right? So he's, he's probably feeling a little bit uh, guilty. Well, anyway, he goes off in a rage. Haman knows his time is up. He goes and starts groveling at Esther's feet. The king comes back in and says, oh, will he now accost the queen? Take him out of here. Hang him on the gallows. So... Just that quick, Haman's gone. Isn't that something? It's really something. So now, Esther is put over all of Haman's house. And Esther says uh, to the king, hey, we need to revoke this decree. The king's like, you can't revoke it. Nobody revokes our laws. But you can write a new decree. So Mordecai drafts this new decree, and they send it to the entire kingdom. The Jews, on in the twelfth month, on the thirteenth, they are allowed to defend themselves and destroy their enemies. So that decree goes out into the entire kingdom. Of course, remember there was an eleven-month period for the Jews to prepare for that, and that's exactly what happens. Um, <coughs> Let's see verse chapter eight, uh, verse eleven and twelve. Verse 12, the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons, I'm sorry, that's chapter 9. Chapter 8, verse 11. Okay, and then the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. I mean, that's that's quite a decree. So that's exactly what happens in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Now in the 12th month, that is in the month of Adar, the 13th day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. Okay, so, and actually, Esther uh, goes on to ask, hey, can we have one more day uh, in Susa to kill and destroy more of our enemies? And the king says, yeah, you can have one more day. And so, you've heard of the Feast of Purim, right? Which is still celebrated today, uh, 2,500 years later. Isn't that something? They celebrate the deliverance of the Jews from their enemy. Uh, the word pure... P-U-R means Lot. And so they named that feast Purim from the casting of the Lot. It's almost an in-your-face to Haman and Satan and what they tried to do to God. Isn't that pretty cool? There's a happy ending to this story. Isn't that great? That's, if there weren't happy endings in movies, you wouldn't go see movies either. Happy endings come from God's Word. Okay, what's, what's the whole point? I mean, what, what just happened here? There was a genocide being planned by Satan, right? And he's, Satan's working through Haman to do this. But God set in motion before Haman even comes on the scene, right? Esther, I mean, the drunk king and the woman that wouldn't come out, and a new queen being chosen for such a time as this, and Mordecai. And do you see all these little events? Did, did you hear of one miracle, one supernatural event? You heard God work through the everyday situations, events of our lives. And so, and did, would you agree that the deliverance of an entire race of people was just as significant as the exodus? Isn't that something? Not one miracle. Not one miracle. And so now, let's look at our situation. Remember I said we're, we're, we're always in crisis. Okay? And God wants it that way because how would we trust Him? We have to trust Him. If you could go back and rem- remember or recount a big crisis in your life and God brought you through it, and you got this wonderful testimony, and you're all happy when you share your testimony about it? Well, That's kind of like reading the book of Esther, right? We, we see in hindsight what God did. It's like, wow, wow, wow. How did Esther and Mordecai feel when they found out they were going to be destroyed? They were not happy campers, right? I mean, your first initial reaction is probably panic. You use this panic wave, anxious, fear. You're going to be wiped out, all your people. And... We don't need to worry about that. God has already put in place in our lives. Okay, yesterday, God was working yesterday in your life to do something to help you with whatever you're going through. Three weeks ago, God was already working in your life, your situation, your circumstances. Three years ago, God was already working in your life, in your set of circumstances, because He's working all things together for good to those who love Him. You want the theme of the whole book of Esther? The theme of the whole book of Esther is really simple. God keeps covenant promises. What, what covenant promise? God said to Abraham, um, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. So if you're a Jew, and you're under foreign oppression, and you don't have a temple or tabernacle anymore, and you're not offering sacrifices anymore, And you're not keeping the feasts anymore, does God really care about you? And the answer in Esther is absolutely. God prevented mass genocide because he's going to keep covenant. If someone's threatening the Jews, God already promised, no weapon formed against you will promise. I said it, I've spoken it, I'll do it. So what covenant are we in? We're in a better covenant than they were. We're in a new covenant. What's our covenant say? We know that God works all things together for good to those who love Him. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will send you the Holy Spirit who will teach you and bring these things to remembrance that I have taught you. Right? I mean, we have Christ in us. who, Who should we be afraid of? What situation and circumstances does God not get? Right? Isn't that pretty cool? So, it's kind of encouraging. You know, you think about it. Think about the day you met your wife. What events had to happen for you to meet your wife? Well, you had to drive somewhere, and then maybe it was a friend, and she just had to be at church on that particular day. Or, I mean, if you trace the story of meeting your wife, don't you see God's providence in that? I would imagine that you would. And some of you want to meet your wife, right? Or your husband? So you don't need to be all discouraged and say, well, you just look at the field, right? Well, there's nobody here that I really desire to be married, so is it ever going to happen? God's already been working for years on your wife and on your husband. Years. He's already putting everything in place one day at a time. So you just, gotta wait. You just keep seeking him, and he'll show you when to open your eyes for your spouse. We're going to do communion. If I could have those who are volunteering to help with communion, come on up. Now, as I was thinking about communion, what is communion? It's a celebration of... Thank you for listening to this message from Cornerstone Community Church. We are located in Lynchburg, Virginia at 525 Old Graves Mill Road. You can find us online at CornerstoneLynchburg.com, contact us by email, CornerstoneCom at or call us at 434-847-4796. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace.